from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through this curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we, are, how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all, all the more as you see the day approaching. I was thinking about uh, the graduations that I have been through, and I was digging through some photos, and I found this picture of uh, myself right after my high school graduation. Do we have it up here? I'm the one on the right uh, with the shiny, non-breathable commencement gown. I don't know what you call those things, Um, but that's me. This is 1991, by the way, so before Friends was a television show. Um, And I don't remember a lot about the graduation because it was 30 years ago. I just realized that. It was 30 years ago. Wow, I'm resigning. (laughs) You need a much younger hipper pastor at this point. Um, But I don't remember too much, but I do remember a few things. I remember that it was in the gymnasium. Uh, This is well before the days of uh, making sure you book a great venue for photography. They just stuck us in the gymnasium, all the fluorescent lights. There was a stage on one end of the uh, gymnasium, so it's packed full of people. Uh, It's very hot, and uh, the smell of uh, wrestling mats and sports cream hovered in the room. That's, uh, I remember that. As you can tell from the photos, the photos, the photo on the screen, I'm, I was a pretty average student. I'm not wearing any cords of academic honor. Uh, I didn't graduate at the top of my class or the middle of my class. In fact, I graduated uh, alphabetically. That's pretty much how that worked. <laughs> our speaker for the uh, graduation ceremony was none other than our principal, which we all adored. And so uh, maybe you're familiar with this uh, type thing where you sit and listen to the person uh, whom maybe you had to uh, explain yourself to a few times, just me. And I, as a youth minister, I was a youth minister for 15 years, and I went to a lot of graduations. And I've heard a lot of graduation speeches. And I can tell you, not just from my own experience of having graduated a few times, but sitting through these, they're all the same. They hear... they are all, it, they just fit into this one category, and it kind of goes like this. Uh, the person says in some way, uh, shape, or form, they say, okay, it is now time for you to take all that you've learned and all that you've experienced in this place and to go out into the world now and to go and learn what it means. Go figure these things out. Go apply these things to your life out in the real world. And our text today is really that kind of thing. It's a spiritual graduation. It's a kind of graduation speech for the soul. It's a spiritual commencement. The writer hands us in our text today what uh, they think we ought to take with us into the world from this point forward. This is why the text begins with the word therefore. 
all of this work up until this point in the letter, the writer has been building a case for something. And then the writer says, therefore, what I want you to do is in light of everything that I've told you, everything that you've learned from this, I want you to go and figure out what this means in the real world of faith and life and practice and relationships and work. Go and figure this out. Now, what have the last seven Sundays been? Uh, You're asking because this is your first Sunday here. Um, It's fairly simple. Uh, The writer has been talking about the work of Christ on the cross and what that means for us and for our life going forward. The nice thing about this text is that it provides a summary of everything we've talked about. There's an implication that's given, and then there's this sending piece where the writer says, now go and do that. So what I want to do this morning is just hit those three things. I want us to look at the summary that the writer gives, the implication that the writer gives, and then this sending piece that we are uh, confronted with. So a very simple, perhaps short sermon. Nobody hates that, right? Uh, I mean, I can make it long. It's fine. Whatever you want to do. Uh, If you have questions along the way, that's fine as well. But I just want to walk through each of these three things, and we'll start with the summary. And this comes from verses um, 19 through 22. And Tain has already read this, so I just want to just highlight a couple of things. Basically, what the writer says in verses 19 through 22 is uh, he's reiterating his obsession that he's had throughout the entire letter, which is this, that Jesus has, when it comes to brokenness, sin, things that we do wrong, things that are wrong with the world, all of those things, uh, that Jesus has wiped the slate clean for you and for me. This has been the writer's obsession from the very beginning, that what Christ has done on the cross, because this is the thing that we have to look at and figure out, what has happened on the cross has wiped the slate clean for, the, for you and for me. And so it's unnecessary for us to keep trying to cement our relationship with God by continually offering up these displays, these sacrifices, these rituals of remorse in hopes that God will have mercy on us each and every day. It's a very difficult thing for us to hear because that's not how the world works. The world works when it comes to us screwing up or making mistakes or doing things wrong. There's a a sense of constant, uh, this constant need of making things right. But the writer says this very incredible thing about the work of Christ on the cross that it doesn't, you don't need to keep doing that when it comes to you and God. The cross, the writer is saying, has put the world on notice that grace and mercy and forgiveness are yours. You can have those things. They are available. That brokenness has been absorbed in Christ and in his sacrifice. And the interesting thing is, because he keeps saying this phrase about Jesus' sacrifice, that it is once and for all. He doesn't keep coming back to die for you and for me, every single day, minute, hour, whatever. It's a once and for all unrepeatable event, and that is really good news. Amen? And so the writer just summarizes that, saying, in case you've forgotten, my obsession has been to remind you or to teach you for the first time that what has happened on the cross is once for all. And the implication, I love the implication. I want to read verse 23 to you. 
let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, which is that whole thing that I just talked about, uh, without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. So the writer is saying, the implication here is, is that you and me, we can rest easy in the shadow of God's grace. That he's not angry with you. That he's not watching to see if you will screw it up again. He's not keeping an eye on you to see or even hope that you fail. You know how you don't unfollow people on social media so that you can just see their life fall apart? This is not how God works. I know some of you aren't laughing because you're like, I do that. (laughs) Oh, look, they're struggling again. Like. (laughs) That's what we do. It's what people do. There's a story in the Old Testament of a man named Jonah. You may have heard this story. There's a giant fish that eats Jonah, but not really. It spits him up onto a plot of land, and there's all these stories that ensue. But the, the basis of the story is that God has asked Jonah to go to this Assyrian city, Nineveh, and to tell them about his grace and mercy over them because they are a difficult people. And Jonah says, uh, no, I'm not interested in them because they're terrible people. And so he tries to run, and God's like, eh, picks him up, puts him there. It's fantastic. He does what God tells him to do. And interestingly enough, the people of Nineveh go, sounds good. And they follow God. I'm really paraphrasing this. It's like the children's version. (laughs) How does that story end? It ends with Jonah climbing to the top of a hill overlooking the city, and he sits and he waits. What is he waiting on? Judgment? To see if the city will burn? That's what we do. People may change, but we kind of hope that they continue to fail. And this is not what God does. This is what we do. And sometimes what we do, we project onto God. Well, God must be like me. This is how I treat others, and this is how God treats others. And so the implication that the writer is giving us is you can rest easy when it comes to those fears. I have an acquaintance who's a pastor in New York City, and I love the front page of their website. It simply says, Enjoy your forgiveness. Enjoy the grace and the mercy that you have received. And then the writer sends us in a certain direction. He writes in verses 24 and 25, And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I love the dig, as is the habit of so-and-so, who hasn't been since we reopened. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer is saying, I need you to pay attention. That all of this spiritual and theological and religious energy, all of that stuff, I want you to redirect it to something else instead of trying to garner God's love and mercy in your life because that's already been given to you. I want you to go a different route. All of this spiritual and theological stuff as well funnels into uh, how we are to live among others, 
It's interesting. All the energy spent trying to make things right, the writer says, no need to do that. Turn that energy to your neighbor. And the word he uses, provoke. Now, in the Greek, this word is quite interesting because it means to irritate, to spur, the NIV says. Great translation. To, it even means to argue, to get into some tension with your neighbor about loving your neighbor. To provoke one another towards love and good deeds. To irritate each other to do the right thing. It's a great word for it because even though we love to talk about, I just want to be a person who loves people and does good things, it's still hard for us to do. We live our own lives. We sort of do what we want to do. We need the encouragement. We need the provocation to continue to look outwardly and not always inwardly. We need that help. And the writer is saying, make sure that you are around people and that people are around you that provoke you towards love and good deeds. All of these things that God has done for you, the writer says, you now go and do for the world. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, singular, it was a popular question at the time. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees were prone to debate these things. And so when they ask him, hey, what do you think the greatest commandment is? It's, it's kind of a difficult question. It's like asking me, like, what is the best guitar solo of all time? Uh, when I was in the hospital uh, back in the spring and uh, coming out of ICU, uh, <laughs> I had a couple of panic attacks because I have those. Luckily, not up here, um, which has happened before, but not here. You're good. Uh, I was having a panic attack, and it was getting a little bit like it was, it was difficult. It was late at night or late into the evening. And the only people on the hall at that point was like just a surgeon. Nothing against surgeons, but they're not like emotional health doctors. And so the surgeon comes in, and I'm really sort of reeling here. And the surgeon comes in and asks my wife, can you, can you just tell him to calm down? And she says, that's not how it works. It makes it worse, actually. But my wife is like trying to calm me down. And she says, she says to me, okay, okay, just let's hold my hand. She's like, what's your favorite Grateful Dead song? My heart rate went up. Like I was like, ah, I don't know. Is it, is it, is it China Cat Sunflower? No, 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 no. It's, it's uh, Sugar Magnolia. No, I mean, it was tough. It was tough. Those are real songs, by the way. So Jesus gets asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And they nod, because that's a classic. That's like, you know, Fleetwood Mac rumors. Like, everybody in the audience is like, he's on to something. I agree. But then Jesus says, and the second, which they did not ask for, and the second is like the first, and that is to love your neighbor as what? Yourself. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, this is interesting, is like the first. It's kind of not like the first if you read them side by side. 
What is Jesus saying? Well, one of the things that he's saying is that the way that we love God is that we love his image. The greatest commandment is often lived out through the second greatest commandment. The most miserable Christians I know are the people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but hate their neighbor. But Jesus says we love God mostly through how we love our neighbor. And the writer is saying, look, the weight of performative religion has been lifted. Amen. And so let us now work out what it means to embody the grace and the mercy and the love of God with those around us in the world. There's this fascinating story of Jesus calling Matthew to be his disciple. And he calls Matthew to be his disciple. And in the very next scene, there's a party at Matthew's house. And at the party, Jesus is surrounded by all these sort of questionable people. And I want to read this story to you, and then we'll put the last verse on the screen for you so you can see it. But listen to the story first. And Jesus was walking along, and he called a man named Matthew, sitting at a tax booth, and said to him, follow me. And he got up, and he followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, so the Pharisees are not good whisperers. When Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And then I want you to see what he says next. Go and learn what this means. I desire what? Mercy, not sacrifice. Now, Jesus isn't just pulling this out of a hat. This is a quotation from an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so it's a graduation text. God has done great things for you. You are safe in his presence. You are loved by him. He showers you with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And you are to enjoy those things. But you are also to turn those attributes of God into livable, actionable items for your life. And so the question for you today and for me is, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to go and learn these things in my life? What does it mean to give mercy and not sacrifice in my places of work or my relationships with my family or friends? What does it mean in my relationship to those who I'm at great uh, difference with? What does it mean? I love that that's what Jesus says. Go and learn what this means. And so that is our call today, that what does this look like and what does this mean for you and for me? It matters to me Took a long time to get here Little 
like a tropical forest, like a cop on the beat. When all is in order, you get lost in the heat. I feel so wonderful.